Everything about the Defense Department is large. The budgets, the number of people, the number of vehicles, buildings, projects, offices, and programs. Also big is the list of management and operational improvement recommendations from the DOD Inspector General. Here with an update, the IG Technical Director for Follow-Up and Quality Assurance, Valerie McMichael. Ms. McMichael, good to have you on. Thank you for having me. And you issue periodic reports, kind of reminding the Pentagon that there are these lists. Give us the sense of the scope of the latest update here. Sure. So we do issue the compendium annually to list out all of the open recommendations that the DOD has. We provide statistics and trends on that data. We give the overall number of recommendations, the age of the recommendations, associated potential benefits, and other information like that on an annual basis. So in a sense, it's almost a data call that you do across the IG and the Pentagon IG offices, quite a big office, pulling in from all the different sectors what it is they've got out as recommendations and compile it into this compendium? Correct, yes. We spend a few months putting all the information together. We take the time to talk with our senior leaders and just determine what they consider to be the highest priority recommendations. And then we have a a good group of people that put this information together and get it distributed, and we hope that it makes an impact. Sure. And since you are the technical director for follow-up and quality assurance, and this report is 506 pages, you must have some good quality control in the proofreading department. We we do. We go through quite a few rounds of proofreading, yes. (laughs) Well, it looked letter perfect when I went through it. And how many open recommendations at this point are there from the various IG functions across the Defense Department? This year, there were 1,425 open recommendations as of March 31st, which is actually a slight decrease since last year's compendium. And is it fair to say that the list is kind of a flow-through? That is to say, new ones come onto the unfilled list every year, but they also do get to some of the issues, and they get closed, and they fly off the list. Fair way to put it? Yes, absolutely. So since the last compendium, the DOD OIG opened 477 new recommendations, and the DOD closed 508 recommendations. So 392 of those 508 were actually recommendations that were from the 2021 compendium. So there was some progress made. And maybe, if you would, just where do the recommendations, well, first of all, do they go to the armed services and all of the so-called fourth estate agencies? Is this across the board, pretty much? We can make recommendations to any DOD entity. This year, we had recommendations addressed to all of the military services and 42 other DOD components. Some of the smaller DOD organizations don't have recommendations every single year, but the larger components of the military services almost always have open recommendations that they're working on, and they'll pretty much always have recommendations in the compendium. And with respect to topic, do the recommendations tend to cluster around, say, budgetary management or procurement, or is there a way to characterize them generally? My team worked to categorize the recommendations into nine topic areas, and the three topic areas that had the most recommendations were information technology resources, finance and accounting recommendations, and then logistics. And I can give you some examples of recommendation types that would fall into those areas. We're speaking with Valerie McMichael. She's Technical Director for Follow-Up and Quality Assurance in the Defense Department Office of Inspector General. Yeah, let's get to some of those examples, maybe starting with information technology. Sure. 
some types of recommendations that would fall into the information technology resources category would pertain to things like the functionality and the protection of DOD systems and equipment, cybersecurity and safeguarding of information, protection of patient health information, for example. In the finance and accounting category, we would have recommendations that relate to DOD's financial transactions and processes, things like internal controls over the business processes to ensure that the transactions are processed in compliance with standards, for example, billing and collection of delinquent medical service accounts. And then in the logistics category, we have recommendations that really tend to pertain to the movement of people and things, things like transportation of ammunition and explosives, planning and execution of moving the troops and the armed forces, timeliness of household goods and shipments to DOD members, that type of thing. Right. So in some cases, then they interact, the recommendations, I would think, because when it comes to controls and billing, there's often a systems component underlying that, and that could be out of date. So in many ways, they interweave, fair to say? Yes, absolutely. I think almost all of the recommendations could probably touch on multiple topic areas, but when we categorize them, we select the one that is the most prominent. And just talking for a moment about finance and logistics, you know, the DOD is the last cabinet department to not be able to offer a unqualified financial statement every year, and that's according to the GAO. And for many years, there's been successive programs to improve business processes in the Defense Department, and the projects have had different names, and there's been a parade of leadership there. Do recommendations also pertain not to just functions, but to programs and projects that might be underway, such as a weapons acquisition program or a modernization project for a particular function like finance? Yes, absolutely. Our audits and evaluations can touch on any aspect of the DOD, and they definitely look at various programs, information systems, readiness, medical treatment facilities and billing. So we can look at absolutely anything across the DOD. And when this report is put together, all 506 pages of it, by the way, do you print it as well as just have a PDF of it? We print to distribute to the Secretary of Defense. Otherwise, besides you know, the Armed Services Committee and the different oversight committees, I imagine, are interested in this, as well as the Secretary of Defense, who else does it go to? Does it circulate widely to the people that oversee the programs and projects that have the recommendations? It does. We distribute it to senior DOD leadership, and then we also distribute it to the points of contact within the DOD that my team works with to conduct the follow-up. So it it is widely distributed across the DOD. And is compiling the compendium for you and your staff, is that a full-time job year-round? No, no, it's not. The staff, most of the year, is working on conducting follow-up. Each of my team members is assigned to specific reports and recommendations, and they go out to their DOD contacts on a regular basis to ask for updates on those recommendations. And then when the DOD is ready to close the recommendations, they submit usually relatively large packages of information that my team analyzes and determines whether or not the recommendations can be closed. So that's really their full-time job, and then the compendium takes about three months of the year. And when the Defense Department collectively is able to close, say, 544 recommendations in a given year, do you think it's because of bird-dogging from the OIG, 
because the leadership is coming down on them and saying, look at this, you're in this list here this year, or because they really want to get things better? I think it's a combination. You know, Different organizations have different tone at the top. We have, for example, the Air Force and the Army that I think have a lot of focus from their top leadership and their progress over the last few years has really shown that. So those are examples where the tone at the top has really made a big difference. But I think in other cases, they want to make the improvements and benefit from our findings. I once heard a high-level military officer say that sometimes the job is like giving a speech in a graveyard. There's lots of people below you, but you're not sure they hear. In your case, Mm -hmm. it sounds like the message is getting out, and it must give you some sense of satisfaction to know that the compendium does result in hundreds of improvements every year. It does. It's a really satisfying job, but there is certainly room for more improvement. You know, not all of the DOD components are as responsible as others. All right. Well, you know who you are, so Valerie might come calling. (laughs) Valerie McMichael is Technical Director for Follow-Up and Quality Assurance in the Defense Department Office of Inspector General. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the latest compendium at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Compile the Federal Drive on your device. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One 
I don't think I still am reflecting on it. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave and we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. Your training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs, how how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're 
passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.